There's honey in the honeycomb. There's sugar in the cane. There's oysters in a real oyster stew. And bubbles and sweet champagne. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen. Samantha Ellis is not with us this episode, but she is here in spirit. This week, thankfully, we have an amazing guest to celebrate the life and times and work of the fantastic Lena Horn. We are joined by James Gavin, author of Stormy Weather, The Life of Lena Horn. James, how are you? I am delighted to be with you talking about someone who has made an enormous impact on my life. I'm excited to talk with you about her. Before we get to that, of course, we'd like to remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should, because we do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at classic film remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at old Hollywood biopics and true crime stories. We just wrapped up our March Madness classic film actress bracket. You can find out who won in the battle between Marilyn Monroe, Betty Davis, Katherine Hepburn, and the fourth person whose name I don't remember. So find out who won over at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We also give out regular care packages of movies, tote bags, and we let you guest on an episode. And don't forget that my book, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems Inspired Our Favorite Movies, is out now. You can pre-order that wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by Samantha Ellis featuring your favorite stars, including our popular Jean and Judy Makoko mugs, as well as our most recent tribute to The Greatest Show on Earth, celebrating Jimmy Stewart's credit, starring Jimmy Stewart as Buttons the Clown. You can find that at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklishbiz. Now back to Lena Horn and James. I'm curious, what inspired you to want to tell Lena's story in your book? She touched my heart very deeply. Adolescent of perhaps 11 or 12 years old, I found her records at a time when I was going on a wild spree to discover the great voices of the great American songbook. I was very interested in music of the past, and I was obsessed with singers. And the singers who caught my ear were the ones in whom I detected trouble, pain conflict. Happy singers, cheerful singers did not mean as much to me because I was, I guess, looking for friends in a funny way, voices that seemed to know what I was feeling. Although Lena Horne's reputation was one of a formidable, steely, unimaginably beautiful and intimidating goddess the records of hers that meant the most to me were the ones in which I heard flickers of what was underneath that shell. One album in particular, actually I'll name two. Both of these albums were made in the mid-1970s on RCA Records. Neither of them sold very well because Alina, as a rule, did not sell a lot of albums. She was thought of as a visual experience. And I heard an album that she made 
1976 with a big, beautiful orchestra conducted by Robert Farnan, the great Canadian arranger-conductor, with the great Phil Woods playing saxophone. And it was an album of mostly sad ballads. Lena, in that album, dropped every hint of that defensive veneer that she had built up over so many years. I play that album to death. It meant so much to me because I felt the humanity of her very strongly, and I was attracted to the sense I had that this is a woman who had struggled and sacrificed and lost enormously in her life. But the year before that, she had made another album on RCA with the great Michel Legrand. I keep saying the great because Lena Horne worked with magnificent musicians and arrangers in her life. And Michel Legrand made an album with her that was more of a jazz funk album that had a lot of anger and a lot of ferocity in it, as well as a lot of pain. And this formed in my mind the idea that there was a real story here that wasn't being told so much. Years passed. The year was 1993. She had been out of the public eye for a few years. And now she was back because she had agreed to record an album that was a tribute to her great soulmate, Billy Strayhorn, who had been Duke Ellington's alter ego, the great composer and arranger. Anita performed in the second half of a concert at the JVC Jazz Festival. She was about 76 and we all wondered what kind of shape Lena would be in. And from the moment she walked out on that stage, it was like a tidal wave. A few months later, the album was about to come out. And I, at that time, was writing a lot of profiles of music figures for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section. And I got the okay to write one on Lena. Lena Horn and I spent around two hours together in a New York hotel room. It was unbelievable to me that having been fascinated by her since childhood, that I could now be alone with Lena Horne asking her every question I had ever wanted to ask her. That interview, which ran in 1994, became the seed of the book that I started about 11 years later. Part of why we love talking to people that actually know or have met these classic film stars is trying to make them tangible for people that maybe are just seeing their movies. What surprised you about Lena Horne interacting with her that maybe audiences watching her films wouldn't realize? Well, what struck me immensely in Lena Horne is that this triumphant figure, this woman who had carried on her shoulders in many ways the mantle of an entire race, an entire generation of struggle, she was extremely wistful and quite sad, quite regretful of most of her life. The things that we would perceive as milestones carried with them an enormous amount of pain for Lena. And I learned that day that the struggle that she had experienced in order to play the role that she was assigned in life, which was to, God, there were so many dimensions to it. Lena Horne, going back to 1942, was the chosen one. 
She was a beautiful young black woman of about 24, 25 years old who had been chosen by Hollywood to break the stereotypical image of the black entertainer in Hollywood. And this was an enormous responsibility. It meant that she had to watch her P's and Q's at every step. She had to disprove a lot of the cliches about what the largely white film-going audience thought of black people. MGM was, of course, the studio. MGM has been, in my opinion, very unfairly maligned for not having done more with Lena than they did in that period of about nine years that, that she was with them. Except for two all-black musicals. One was Cabin in the Sky at MGM, and the other one was Stormy Weather, for which she was loaned out to Fox. All-black musicals. They were frothy movies in which she had lines. She played a part. But in all the other MGM musicals that she made, Lena was presented as this mysterious, beautiful bauble, this gorgeous, untouchable beauty who was groomed with the same degree of attention and glamour and fabulousness that any white star in Hollywood had been. And she would come on, usually in a nightclub scene, a party scene, and she would sing a song or two, and then she would leave. Lena wanted more, understandably, but what MGM did with her at that time has to be understood in the context of the times. And that is that nothing like this had ever been done before. Great social change does not happen in a big sudden lurch. It happens by increments. And MGM not only paved the way, they created a bridge between an unenlightened time and a more enlightened time that happened within the space of that nine years. This was huge. Also, what MGM did was they created the Lena Horn of Legend. This mysterious, glamorous, untouchable figure that she used for years and years to come. So I have nothing but respect for the way MGM treated Lena Horne. However, by the time I was with her in 1994, she recalled those years with great pain, great ambivalence. I understood that day that while Lena had been triumphant professionally, triumphant artistically, triumphant socially, personally, she was a sad lady. It's interesting to hear that because I know that I've talked to Rita Moreno, who was one of the few Latina actresses, and she has a very similar ambivalence about some of her early films that the typecasting did give a, a patina to the films because she was so hampered. In preparation for this episode, I did watch Stormy Weather and Cabin in the Sky. I had never seen them before. Cabin in the Sky is a very, very sweet movie about life and death. And I'm a big person that likes the weird fantasy movies about death and dying that Hollywood did in the 1940s. Stormy Weather, supposedly very fictional look at Bill Bojangles Robinson's life. And she is there. She's lovely, as she always is. In researching for this episode, I read a quote that she said where she was tired of being typecast, quote, as a Negro who stands against a pillar singing a song. I did that 20 times too often. 
it was really hard not to look back at those films and as good as she is in those roles, so many of those performances are things that the studio had to cut or be able to lift out of the film to play those in Southern theaters, which is got to be frustrating if you're a performer knowing that you're filming scenes that can just easily be clipped out of whatever city you're going to be in. That is actually part of the Lena Horn mythology. In all the research that I did for my biography, I came across only one documented instance in which this had happened. And it was her number Love by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine in the movie Ziegfeld Follies. The incident occurred in Memphis. And I did find articles bearing out the fact that that number had been clipped out when the film was screened in various theaters in Memphis. However, I interviewed at least two people who had grown up in the South who were big MGM fanatics and went to see all the new MGM movies when they opened in Southern theaters. And they told me that Lena's numbers were there. So while the one incident is bad enough, it should never have happened, we have to understand MGM in the context of those terribly unenlightened racist years and the fact that they did as much as they possibly could have in order to present Lena as a star. Frustrating for Lena? Absolutely, because Lena was someone who always felt detached. She always felt removed from the rest of everybody. And a lot of that had to do with her beauty, as a matter of fact. It's hard for any of us who are not raving beauties to understand or sympathize with people who are in any way, because people looked at Lena Horne for many years, even until this day, and they think, well, what did she have to be sorry about? She was gorgeous. She was a star. Part of my goal in my book was to get underneath that and to find out the price that one pays for that. I'll give you an example. When I met Lena on that afternoon in 1994 to do the interview with her at this Midtown Manhattan Hotel, she was there with her manager, Sherman Sneed, in the lobby. I walked up to them. The moment that I was face to face with her, she was dressed down. She was dressed to conceal. She was wearing a baggy white suit and a cap and big dark glasses, and it was unmistakably Lena Horne. Why? Because when she smiled, that smile was blinding. Everything that I saw, I'm getting goosebumps now to even think about it. I involuntarily pulled back like this. And that moment gave me a little insight into what it was like to be Lena Horne when everybody treats you differently and pulls back from you because you are this untouchable, gorgeous creature. And I thought in the years that I was writing that book, which would have been 2005 to 2009 when it came out, I thought a lot about how cut off Lena Horne felt from other people. This started long before MGM, but I think that MGM magnified the situation because Lena Horne felt, I'm not good enough to interact with white actors in an actual scene. They keep putting me all by myself up there on the stage to sing a song and then disappear. I don't get to speak. 
and I totally get it. But she really worked it to her advantage because that became the Lena Horn persona for years to come. Then many more years passed, and now it's 1981, and Lena Horn's fantastically successful one-woman show, Lena Horn, The Lady and Her Music, has opened on Broadway. It is the triumph of a lifetime, and there is Lena Horn alone on a stage. And it's so amazing to hear those stories. Because you're showcasing the dichotomy of a woman who was just so beautiful and so talented and also had to represent so many other things beyond her, which is still an issue. I know that actors and performers of color are still dealing with because the representation is still so skewed. You mentioned the Lena Horn mythology. The story that everybody hears is that Lena Horn was going to be in Showboat. They cast Ava Gardner. She said that that is true in certain interviews. The other people have said that that is not true. What did you find out about that story? I devoted many pages to the Showboat incident in my book because it is one of the defining stories connected with Lena Horn to this day. Lena Horn, by the end of her period at MGM, was sick of it all, and she felt very victimized, and she desperately wanted to play this part that went to her dear friend, Ava Gardner, a white actress. And what I found out about that period was that contrary to popular belief and contrary to what Lena Horn believed with all her heart, if MGM had cast Lena Horn in the role of a young woman who had black blood but was passing for white successfully. If you cast a black actress in that part, it just wouldn't work. It would spoil the whole surprise of Showboat. That was probably the main reason why Lena Horn did not wind up getting that part. She had felt a few years earlier in the movie, Till the Clouds Roll By, she had sung the character Julie's big song, Can't Help Loving That Man, in a ravishing sequence directed by Vincent Minnelli that, again, is giving me goosebumps just to think about. And Lena Horne hoped that this was a sort of audition for the actual showboat. What remake would it have been? There was the James Whale one in the 30s. This is the second one? I don't know. I'm not big on All showboat this, it, in general. <laughs> <laughs> All these factoids used to be in the front of my brain, but that was a while back. There were other factors at play as well. One of them is that up until that time, there was no real reason to believe that Lena Horne had the acting chops to play this part. Some have reasoned that that is because she never got the chance to develop them. I consider the Lena Horne performances in the MGM period to be Lena Light, L-I-T-E, in comparison with what came later on because she had not blossomed and blossomed as far too sweet and gentle an image to describe the transformation that took place in Lena Horne in the 1950s that I think was largely wrought by extreme anger and frustration. A hardness came into her that was one of the defining characteristics of Lena during her Waldorf Astoria period, for example. She was the goddess at the Waldorf Astoria's Empire Room from New Year's Eve of 1956 to, I believe, 1962. 
she was the one in this very bougie, very white, upscale, midtown, east side, New York hotel. She was not the first black performer to perform there. There were others before her. But she took over that place. She showed people a whole other Lena Horne than they had seen at MGM because now Lena was ferocious and she was hard and there was a definite sense of don't get any closer. This is as close as you're going to get. And there was something incredibly glamorous and seductive about that Lena Horne. But turning back the clock to 1949-51, when the showboat project was, was underway, I don't think that they felt that, A, that it would make dramatic sense to cast her in that part, and B, that she wasn't up to the acting demands of the part. It broke her heart, and it was, for Lena Horne, the last straw. She wanted out. Now... And it's wonderful to talk about the MGM period of Lena with you because it was a very important phase in Hollywood. For all the credit that Lena Horne has gotten for what she represented in those years, the fact that she appeared on camera getting the full-out glamour treatment, that she was superb in what she did, and that she was showing Black America something that they had never dreamed possible. And she was showing white America, a black performer like they had never seen before. And all of that was huge. To watch Cabin in the Sky reminded me of, and it would be a great double feature with something like The Devil and Daniel Webster, which is also this fable about Satan and life and death and Simone Simon plays a, a very similar character to Georgia Brown in Cabin in the Sky. And they're almost two halves of the same coin, which I really appreciated. And even though Lena has a rather minor role in Cabin in the Sky, she makes that role her own. You can understand why the main character in the movie is willing to stake his soul on her, which is fantastic. And then to see something like Stormy Weather which the character is supposedly very loosely based on some other famous singers of the time, not necessarily a relationship that Bill Robinson had ever been in, but she's playing like an Ava Gardner in the 1940s role, the good girl that's just always around in the corner. Even though the roles are law in the grand scheme of things, all the other actresses of the day toiled in those kind of roles, those very basic roles. What's frustrating is that Lena didn't necessarily get that A-level film that really just catapults her. I know a lot of people say Death of a Gunfighter in 1969 is the film that gives her a bit of a, a role that isn't race-reliant, is a drama. I have not seen that. You can tell me if that movie's not even worth my time. If you enjoy the podcast, consider supporting us on our Patreon, like David Floyd, Amy Hart, Jeffrey, Brittany Brock, and Elizabeth Ziegler. Our Patreon helps pay the bills, and our patrons get access to a wealth of exclusive content like our classic actress March Madness Tournament, bonus series like Doubled Features, based on a true podcast, and Being Elvis, as well as patron bonus swag like our But Have You Read the Book tote bags. Patrons also get monthly video updates from us. Patronage starts at just a dollar a month and gives you the opportunity to start listening to episodes like this 48 hours early. Head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz to learn more. It's fine. It'd be, it's a B Western. It's okay. Nobody paid much attention to it, frankly, at that time. 
But you're uh, right. You're absolutely right. It gives Lena Horne a chance to, to show that she had deepened as an actress. There were not many such opportunities for her in her life. It's a thing that we complain about as classic film fans for any of the actresses of color. Anna Mae Wong is a great example. Hattie McDaniel, Butterfly McQueen. They all got, unfortunately, because of the time, hampered in roles that didn't showcase their talents. It's what's frustrating about watching Lena's films is that she's just so magnetic. And you wish that you could go back in time and things were different. But we have the films that she made, and she's really great in both of the films that I got to watch. So I'm excited to see more. What's interesting about Lena as a singer is that somehow through the medium of song, she could be an overwhelmingly strong actress. I want to bring up something else that occurred to me while you were speaking. Yes, and that please. Is that in addition to all of the pressures we've already discussed that Lena was feeling, she also had to deal with the fact that she was very, very resented that having been placed in a position where there was only one slot at that time and she got it. You can imagine how other black female performers felt, how much they resented the fact that she was the chosen one and they had somehow been overlooked. She was intensely aware of this in stormy weather. She was assigned Ethel Waters' big song, the song that Ethel Waters had introduced at the Cotton Club. And Ethel was mad as hell about this. And because Lena was apparently having a little thing with Vincent Minnelli at the time, who was gay, go figure, but those things happened in those days, that gave Hollywood insiders who were inclined to be critical of Lena added ammo against her. And Ethel certainly was in that category. Ethel Waters opened the door that Lena Horne walked through. Ethel Waters was huge, hugely important and very ill-served by history because Ethel Waters is a figure of monumental importance. She was on the downslide when Lena Horne was emerging, and so she was naturally very, very resentful of, of what was happening to Lena and the treatment that Lena was getting. There was a lot of resentment between them on Ethel's side, not so much on Lena's side, during the making of Cabin in the Sky, because Lena was being treated as this special, beautiful creature, the hot, fine, young thing. Ethel was pissed, understandably. As we discuss all of this, it underlines how hard it was in those days to be these people. All the things that we cannot begin to imagine that were day-to-day -day struggles for them to get to that position that these people got was simply incredible. I'm going to make one more sidetrack because it might be pertinent here. I was fortunate when I was researching my book that Lots and lots of the people who had known Lena in the very early days were still around. Lena Horn was at the Cotton Club in 33, 34, 35, thereabouts. And I actually found people who were there with Lena in the Cotton Club. I found other Cotton Club girls. I found people who had known her even in the late 1920s, which is extraordinary. 
And I found that a lot of those people, a lot of those performers at the Cotton Club, which was a racially complicated place, needless to say, in which nearly the entire audience was white and ordinary black people were basically not allowed in. There was a friends and family table where friends and family and also big black celebrities would be allowed. But otherwise, it was all black on the stage and almost all white in the audience. And I found that a lot of the performers that I met who had been on that stage were more than anything else grateful for the chance. Lena Horne was not so grateful because Lena was hip to what was going on in that place, which was unusual then. These black performers just considered themselves lucky to be on a stage singing and dancing, and the rest of the stuff that they had to deal with, they dealt with. This was one of the things that struck me about Lena, the fact that Lena was on to the game. She resented it terribly, but Lena was also very, very ambitious. And Lena took all the steps that it took to get where God. It's amazing to hear you talk about the dichotomy and the resentment with her and Ethel Waters, because the movie fosters that as well. Georgia Brown, the Lena character, is the hot young girl who shows up in crop tops, is beautiful looking <laughs> at herself in the mirror, and, and poor Ethel Waters plays a woman named Petunia, who is this example of the good wife. She's very pious. She's always praying, which is why the ending of the movie is so fun, because you get to see Ethel Waters let loose and dress up and there's a joke about her singing the song, Torch Song style. The sad fact is, is that women, regardless of race, were so often pitted against each other at that time to keep them in line in a lot of ways. Betty and Joan is the great example. We love to see women feud. Watching both of them, I don't think most people remember Cabin in the Sky for, no offense, Eddie Rochester Anderson's great. But I don't believe anybody's watching this movie and comes away with the guys are really good. Although Rex Ingram as Lucifer Jr. is really, really good. It's the women. You're watching this movie and you're just dazzled by the both of them. Ethel is divine in that movie. Divine. She's so, career, so good. She was on the descent at that point. Although she still had a couple of enormous milestones ahead of her. In general... Ethel's heyday would have been from the late 20s through the late 30s. Those were her really hot years. Bobby Short said to me, God, I miss that man. I wish he were still here. But Bobby Short said to me when I interviewed him, and he'd known them both, he said that Ethel Waters lived through things that Lena Horne never imagined. That's easy to understand because Ethel came, I forget what year Ethel was born, but certainly Ethel appeared on the scene. Ethel was famous a decade before Lena was. That 10 years prior, now Lena, at a very young age, had been plucked out of the relative comfort of this black bourgeoisie upbringing in Brooklyn at that time as a member of a rather distinguished family. But her mother, was an aspiring actress at a time, as we've made clear, when there was very, very little work for an aspiring Black actress. And so she pulled Lena away from the father. They went down south into the heart of the Deep South while her mother 
found work in what were known as tent shows at that time, which were these all-black outdoor shows. Lena, as a result, had to deal with things that no child should ever have had to see, being in the Deep South in the 1920s. Furthermore, as Lena grew up and turned into this stunning beauty and began getting opportunities that her mother wasn't getting, she had to deal with her mother's resentment as well. So Lena was getting it from every angle. We know many a show mother in old Hollywood history. Ethel Waters was born in 1896, in case anybody was curious. I talk about this a lot. The state of biopics about old Hollywood stars is still very white. Unless you're Marilyn Monroe or Fred Astaire, the lack of biopics about Black actors and actresses of this time is very, very small. It's pretty much Dorothy Dandridge and Josephine Baker. That's it. And I know that they talked several years ago about Janet Jackson playing Lena Horne, and then the Super Bowl happened. Allegedly, they said Lena Horne and her daughter told Janet Jackson not to take the role. Do you know if that is a true fact? I've never heard that before. My understanding is that Lena had very mixed feelings about this biopic happening, and she had avoided and avoided and avoided signing her contract. She wasn't signing off on it. Janet Jackson inadvertently gave Lena her out, because when that incident happened, Lena could now say, I don't want any part of this. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because when the idea came to me to write a book about Lena Horne, Lena had been out of the public eye for so long that I frankly wondered if there was still an audience for it. Naively, I wondered, do people still care? That incident with the aborted uh, Janet Jackson biopic got so much attention in the press that I realized that a lot of people still cared about Lena Horne. And that was what gave me the half of the impetus that I had to write that book. And I'll tell you what the other half was. The man to whom I dedicated my book was Gene Davis. Dear friend of mine, Gene Davis was a producer of black and black-themed documentaries and television shows. And when I met Gene, he had done hour-long documentaries on Shirley Horn and Abby Lincoln that really caught my eye. Gene was a marvelous, supportive man to me, and I confided in him. I had written one biography at that time, but I was afraid as a white author that I didn't have the chops to write this book, A, B, that I would not be taken seriously by the people that I needed to talk to. And Gene was the one who told me to do it. God bless him for that. I wish he were still here too. Without him, I'm not sure I would have done it. To go off of that, do you want a Lena Horn biopic? Do you think that the world is ready to see that story of her life? I have wanted it desperately since my book was published, and I've had a couple of near misses. The first of which I'll tell you about is there was actually interest on Halle Berry's part not to play Lena Horne, but to, the memory is a little fuzzy, but as I recall, it didn't go anywhere, but to direct this. And right around that time, Oprah Winfrey 
announced that she was going to do a film with Alicia Keys playing Lena Horne, which of course never happened. But as you know, these announcements are made in Variety in the Hollywood Reporter all the time, and the vast number of those projects never happen. So it's a way of putting your thumbprints on the project so that other people back off. That was the end of that little dream. And then since then, two or three other people have approached me about doing it, and it just has never happened. To answer your question, I would love to see this story happen because I want Lena's legacy to be perpetuated, and I want more people who weren't around when Lena Horn was happening. I want them to know about this woman. But what I do not want is the mythologized and somewhat cliche version of the Lena Horn story to go down in a film, because the truth is much more nuanced than that. I don't want to see Lena Horn used as a convenient indication, a convenient example of what racism in her day was, because the truth is never, pardon the expression, so black and white. There are always shadings and degrees of nuance that have to be accepted. I did my very best to clear all of that stuff up in my book. I am not sure that it made any difference. Some, a little bit, the people who read my book learned more about the real story, I feel, than the press release version of the Lena Horn story. The truth is always much more interesting than the myth, in my opinion. I long to see it happen in my lifetime the right way. I am right there with you. I would just love to be able to have more biopics so that I'm not constantly talking about the same three white film stars. Not that I don't love <laughs> your Marilyn Monroe's and your Judy Garland's, but I would love some variety. Is there no, an no, actor I, today that you think could play Lena? Movies like the Elvis biopic have opened the door to finding some fabulous lesser-known person who is not there simply because of instant cha-ching, box office assurance. The Elvis movie was so gigantic. It made so much money the world over, and it made a star out of that guy who wasn't so famous before then is, and is now, I suppose. That's a whole other discussion we could be having because <laughs> Hollywood doesn't create stars the way it used to anymore. And you know a lot more about that than I do. But I've observed the fact that the old star system in which stars were created and nurtured and perpetuated, it's not like that anymore. So I would love to see them find some terrific girl who has not gotten that kind of opportunity to play Lena Horne. But I want to ask you a question now. Of course. And I completely agree with you about the dearth of black biopics. Who would you like to see depicted in a biopic that has been up until now passed over? Oh, gosh. We're just talking about in general. I always say Lupe Velez. I love Lupe Velez. She was the Mexican spitfire. But at the same time, she was messy. But she was also a comic genius in her own right. Also had a very famous invented feud with another Latina actress, Dolores Del Rio, dated the wrong men, made a lot of bad decisions, and is now unfortunately immortalized, I put that in air quotes, 
thanks to Kenneth Angier and Hollywood Babylon in a way that has made me very sad. So I would love something like that. Nina Mae McKinney is another, if we're talking Black actresses, that I would love to see. She dated women, had such a colorful life, hung out with William Randolph Hearst's niece through his relationship with Marion Davies. I would just love to see that. My sad realization is that if we can't get a Carol Lombard biopic because she's too niche and she's white, then I have no hope for my dream. We don't even have a Rita Hayworth biopic in this day and age. And Rita's huge. And a woman of colors. Go figure that one. Someone said to me recently, because I've been down this road of film options a number of times, I've written four biographies, and I've had a few dip my toe into that murky swamp. No film has yet resulted. Dear friend of mine, Stevie Phillips, who was a, a big Hollywood agent in the 1970s and 80s, she said Hollywood it's not a town of production, it's a town of development. And the vast majority of these projects just never happen. What a shame. And it's a shame that Lena Horne has gotten lumped into that because, she, it, as you well know, it is an epic American story. Every phase of it has importance. Every phase of it could be a movie. And Lena Horne to me, she's just the world in so many ways. That's why I consider myself immensely privileged to have been the guy to tell that story in a book in the depth that I did, because I, too, felt that in telling that story, I had a huge responsibility to get to the truth of Lena Horne and the importance of Lena Horne, which I consider to be gigantic. The fact that you are having this conversation with me now reinforces that feeling in me because you really know your stuff. I'm delighted to be talking about Lena in this depth. Thank you. We try. It was great for me to get to watch her work in a way that was actually focused on her. And I'm excited to see more. If somebody outside of reading your wonderful book, which they should all do, if they want to see a great example of her talent, what do you recommend they watch? Great question. There are fantastic television performances of Lena Horne. I will recommend a couple. On The Muppet Show, Lena sang I Got a Name with The Muppets. It's an abridged version of the song, unfortunately, but you see Lena in this setting, surrounded by Muppets, and it's supposed to be light and hearted and goofy, I suppose. But Lena takes that song so seriously. And at a certain point, she clutches the hand of one of the Muppets because she means it so much. She absolutely gave you that song and humanized the Muppets around her. I am for the third time getting goosebumps as I tell you about that. Isn't it funny that that popped into my head? The Lady and Her Music is a very complicated mixed bag for me. It was filmed after closing for an invited audience for that, I believe it was Showtime special, by which time Lena had done that show for a year and three months, I believe. The whole show had hardened a great deal. I was lucky to see that show. I was a teenager. I saw it very close to the beginning of the run and very close to the end of the run. In that period of time, a lot of Lena's emotional demons took over. The show 
became much harder and tougher by the end and the vulnerability was gone. Then I would recommend, gosh, there's a performance of Lena singing Moon River on the Bell Telephone Hour. And I watched it once with Gene Davis. This would have been around 1966. And he watched it and he said, that is not a happy lady singing this romantic, sweet, wistful song. Lena's television appearances, all of them are fascinating because of her relationship with the television camera. She was not simply standing on a stage being photographed. When she looked into that camera, I feel to this day riveted watching her command of the camera that she learned at MGM. And I would recommend to your listeners that they check out her appearances on the Dean Martin show, on the Perry Como show. What's remarkable about them in every phase is that Lena was a performer who took her baggage with her on stage. Whatever she was feeling, thinking, angry about, sad about, she put it in those songs. And I love when singers do that. You can so easily trace Lena's emotional trajectory by watching those television appearances through the years. Going down the YouTube Lena Horn rabbit hole is an endlessly rewarding task. James, it has been such a treat to get to talk to you today. Stormy Weather is available on Amazon. People can buy it in whatever format they like. I know you have a website if you want to let people know about that or any other ways that they can interact with you online. Thank you. It's jamesgavin.com. I'm on all of the social media. I have a Twitter account, but nobody cared. Nobody read any of it. So I abandoned it. I love Facebook because I love posting my photography and I love having deep discussions with my Facebook friends. So I'm very into that. I also have ampersand at James Gavin Books on Instagram. As a way of wrapping this up and bringing this conversation full circle, your listeners can't see this. You can. Behind my head on the wall is the album that I brought for Lena Horne to sign the day that I did that New York Times interview with her in 1994. And it's an album called Lena Horne, Lovely and Alive. I want to read you the inscription on the album. It says to Jim, now you know Bill's friend. And Bill was Billy Strayhorn. Affectionately, Lena. And believe me, I will treasure that till the day I die. I love that so much. Written in silver ink on this beautiful cover in a very, not demure, but tiny penmanship. There's a shyness to it. I read that inscription and it reminds me that time I was a kid and Lena Horn opened her heart to me. There were decades between us and she chose to talk to me because, as she said, I don't do this a lot. So when I'm with someone like you, I talk too much. That's a note to go out on. James, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been an absolute joy, and I think you are terrific. That closes out Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Reviews matter, so consider leaving us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. We have not had one in 2023. That is very sad for me. You can follow the show on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at ticklishbiz. You can follow me at The Wrap and on Twitter, as well as Instagram at KristenLopez88. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content. 
like our classic film actress March Madness bracket. So consider helping us out and donating a dollar at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And of course, my book, But Have You Read the Book, is out now. You can order it wherever you get books. We will be returning with a new episode on May 10th. Till then. <laughs> <laughs>